Hello, this is Glenn Fleischman, and this is the Tiny Typecast, a podcast that's about type, printing, and history, past and present. This episode is a little different. I'm not interviewing anybody, but I'm going to read you a chapter from my book, Six Centuries of Type and Printing, which you can find at tinytypemuseum.com. If you go there, you can find out more about the book and the Tiny Type Museum, of which there are just 10 left for sale forever. This episode ties in with a new Kickstarter campaign I launched to create a 3D model of the monotype electro display matrix, a critical piece of type history created by monotype to allow the casting of massive amounts of individual pieces of type to create sets that were suitable to put into cases for hand typesetting. This work builds on academic efforts to create digital models of common but hard to source type artifacts. Now, while I've had electro display matrices in my hand, and one is in every tiny type museum and time capsule, they aren't really that commonplace anymore. If they're in good condition and can be used to cast type, you'll find them in active use at commercial and personal type foundries around the United States and around the world. If they're not in such good shape, a lot of people don't know what they are, so they wind up falling into disuse and getting thrown away or rusting out. I have a small number of historic monotype electro display matrices and also supercaster matrices. And I've built this new Kickstarter campaign around the notion of creating a 3D model that will be distributed freely about six months after the model is delivered to backers of the campaign. The digital file will go out first. Then I'll also be making 3D prints from that model. And backers of the campaign can choose to get the digital file, the digital file and a 3D print, or both those things and historic type matrices as well. You can find out more about the Kickstarter campaign by going to glennf.com slash electro. That's G-L-E-N-N-F, like Frank, dot com slash E-L-E-C-T-R-O. Or just go to Kickstarter and type in monotype electro and you'll find it in the Kickstarter search engine. To further the educational aspect of this project, I'm going to read a chapter from Six Centuries of Type and Printing that addresses how electrotyping works. It's a not well understood and not often discussed part of type history, partly because, well, as you hear in the chapter, it was discouraged from conversation because it could be used for piracy. Here's the chapter called A 19th Century 3D Printer from the book Six Centuries of Type and Printing. We think of 3D printing as a modern invention, but two centuries ago, a clever electrochemical process allowed the ready duplication of objects. The 3D printing of the 1800s era was known as electrotyping. It relied on the new availability of electricity in industrial processes. It was widely used by the end of the century in the printing industry, as well as to make duplicates of works of sculpture and metal smithing that were then distributed to museums around the world. In printing, electrotypes were a boon to reproducing illustrations as they picked up the fine details of woodcuts. Printers began to use electrotyping around 1840 to that end and later duplicated entire pages and individual pieces of type. Starting with an original, such as a locked-up form of type, an electrotyper brushed the page lightly with graphite and then used a press to force wax or a similar malleable material onto the type under great pressure to fill every crevice and stroke. They removed the wax mold and coated its interior form even more thoroughly with graphite. The mold was then hung in a bath full of a copper solution through which electricity flowed. The electricity causes the copper to precipitate out of the solution and deposit onto the graphite. As it covers the graphite, copper then grows on itself to form a solid shell. 
The electrical source for the approach relied initially on a battery, which could produce only limited amperage or current, and electrotypes could take a dozen or more hours to make. Later, electric dynamos delivered far higher amperage, and the time required to deposit a copper shell could be cut by 90%. For a page of type, when the shell reached the necessary thickness based on its purpose and how long it needed to last, from about 1 128th of an inch to 1 32nd of an inch, or 0 0.008 inches to 0 0.031 inches, it was removed for backing up and finishing. That involved filling the shell with something like the type metal used for casting type. The finished electrotype could be mounted in a variety of ways to make it the right height to paper. But I used the example of a page of type for easier visualization. For typecasting purposes, electrotypes were rather different. Techniques for replicating type were perfected by around 1845. Instead of making a copy of something to print, both printers and foundries employed them to make matrices by deposition instead of by striking a punch into a metal blank. To create a matrix by electrotype, a worker had to recess either a punch or an existing piece of type into a negative space that started with a planchet or a piece of copper or brass, just as with regular matrix making. However, these were thinner for electrotype. The planchet held a rectangle routed out of its face where the recessed mold in a matrix would normally sit. Underneath that region, the typer punch was clamped and the space behind it filled in. Prepared and placed into an electrotyping tank, copper would grow over the typer punch and fill the rectangular hole. When the copper passed the level of the other side of the planchet, the electrotyped piece could be taken out of the tank. The type or other punch was then removed, leaving a perfect mold in its place. Another thicker piece of metal was typically then riveted underneath the matrix to strengthen it and the whole item finished square and level at its surfaces. With a monotype electro display matrix, it just needed to be leveled, flat, and finished. It looked in most ways like a standard matrix. This offered foundries a number of advantages. If a punch was lost or broken, it became a straightforward engineering process to make one or more new matrices from existing type. Type founders also started having their cutters engrave faces into type metal or brass. This much softer metal could hold more detail and be carved more quickly. This led to a profusion of ornamental and complicated display faces. It also solved a problem in casting larger sizes of type as the steel punches above book sizes were more difficult to cut and strike with. With the Bruce and Barth machines, casting larger and fancy faces was no longer a difficulty. The two innovations paired neatly. This era was oddly effaced from history, as David McMillan notes at his site Circuitous Root. Many modern writers skip this story and jump from steel punches to the next topic at hand, the pantograph. But it's critical to understanding why type foundries, given a remarkable new tool, began to suffer financially, a development that contributed to consolidation and bankruptcies. The reason is piracy. Printers bought typecasting machines of all sorts because electrotyping, performed in-house or by one of the many electrotyping plants that sprang up, allowed them to purchase a font or acquire or borrow matrices and create their own molds. Other foundries got into the act too. Despite patents and other protections, duplicating fonts was more of a socially and commercially awkward situation than an illegal one. An owner of the Central Type Foundry, founded in 1870, Karl Schraubstadter Jr., tried to set the historical record straight. In 1887, he wrote in the trade journal Inland Printer that electrotyping was in heavy use, something confirmed by later historians examining specimen books and type. 
A competitor, James M. Connor of the James Connors Sons Foundry, angrily replied in his company's in-house publication, quote, little reference is made to the piratical custom of many founders in using this process to copy original designs cut in steel, end quote. Schrauschader replied in early 1888, quote, a good thing is not to be condemned because it is put to a disreputable use, end quote. By the time he published that, however, Connor was dead. And in five years, both Connors and Schraubstadter's firms were absorbed into a single corporation comprising nearly all the remaining type foundries in the country to avoid falling prey to bankruptcy. Piracy was one cause. The pantograph was the other. And that's the end of the book excerpt. I hope you liked it. I hope it gave you some more insight into how electrotyping worked and the risks of piracy that foundries faced. Again, you can read more about that in my book, Six Centuries of Type and Printing. And if you would like to support the Kickstarter campaign to create a 3D model and prints of a monotype electro display matrix, you can go to glennf.com slash electro. That's G-L-E-N-N-F.com slash electro, or click in the show notes. You can also go to Kickstarter and search on monotype electro. There will be no other campaign you will find with that name. This is the Tiny Typecast. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app for future episodes. Tell your friends and visit tinytypemuseum.com for more information about the Tiny Type Museum and Time Capsule and the book Six Centuries of Type and Printing. The show's theme includes mechanical elements from Sounds of Change, an archive of freely available recordings of industrial equipment available at soundsofchange.eu. The theme uses Linotype N14 line casting, sound recordist Monica Wizitka, and Heidelberg Platen Press in use of the finished labor museum Werstas, used under creative commons license i've been your host glenn fleischman this episode was recorded november 2021 the podcast is copyright 2021 by a periodical llc it is licensed under creative commons cc by nc 4.0 feel free to distribute this podcast by any means as long as it remains intact thanks for listening